Hey everybody, Phil here from SpexCast. Before we get started, I wanted to give an update on the show. First of all, this episode you're listening to here was recorded earlier this year, so we might talk about some events that seem current to us, but it's because it's us from the past. Second of all, this year, a new co-host, Ferris, will be joining us. You'll get to know him a little bit more at the start of the show. And third of all, we have a few more episodes already recorded for this year, and we plan to release them on a more regular basis. And we are currently recording even more episodes for 2020. Thanks. On with the show. The views expressed here do not reflect the views of our respective employers. Hello and welcome to SpexCast, a podcast about the science and technology of space exploration. My name is Phil and I'll be your host today alongside TJ. Hello. And Ferris. Hello. SpexCast is made for space fans like you. Check out space news and mission deep dives on our website, blog.spexcast.com, and join the space discussion on forum.spexcast.com. You can also send us a tweet at SpexCast or send an email to SpexCast at gmail.com. 2019 has come to a close as another exciting year for space exploration. Today, we'll take a look back on notable space news from 2019 and look ahead to what's to come in 2020. So welcome, Ferris. Uh, Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Thank you guys for having me. I'm currently a space systems engineer in the industry. I studied aerospace engineering at UC San Diego. And during my time in college, I worked with SEDS, Students for the Exploration and Development of Space, at UC San Diego to develop 3D printed rocket engines. And we were one of the first student groups to develop um, 3D printed rocket engines. Um, We also worked on a, strapped it to a liquid fueled rocket we flew to about 10,000 feet. I worked on a, within the same, you know, within my time in college, I've also worked on um, the Tritea CubeSat, which was part of the NASA CubeQuest competition to launch secondary payloads on EM-1. Um, and during our time working on Tritea, we've kind of uh, gone past the conceptual design phase, preliminary, critical design, um, and kind of were able to place in the top three in the nation for the competition. Ultimately, though, our project was shelved um, because of the long timelines associated with space missions. And from there on, I worked on a small startup to make software for systems engineers to support the development of really complex projects. And we worked with the Air Force for some time. And from there on, I transitioned um, to being a space systems engineer. Awesome. Well, uh, we're really happy to have you on board and yeah, looking forward to bringing you along with us in these conversations about uh, space science and technology in 2020. Awesome. So to start out, we'll take a look at some science missions that happened this past year. I'll lead the way with talking about OSIRIS-REx. OSIRIS-REx is a NASA mission uh, to an asteroid Bennu uh, where it will map out the asteroid and then take a sample and bring it back to Earth. And uh, OSIRIS-REx arrived in December 3rd, 2018, and all of 2019, it's been orbiting Bennu and mapping it, and next year where it'll actually take a sample of the asteroid. OSIRIS-REx is really interesting because it is the evolution of the asteroid redirect mission. Uh, that used to be NASA's biggest flagship mission uh, that was going to leverage SLS and Orion, 
And with the shift of SLS and Orion to Artemis and back to the moon, OSIRIS-REx is going to be NASA's big push uh, to collect a sample from an asteroid in the immediate future. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited about the return sample from an asteroid. We can learn more about kind of regolith composition, pave the way for future kind of asteroid mining missions, kind of just building up that wealth of knowledge. Yeah, asteroid mining is this huge topic that a lot of people are super excited about because of all the potential for natural resources and rare metals. And, you know, we, we need to figure out how to get to these asteroids, uh, orbit around these asteroids, land on these asteroids uh, at a very small scale before we can even dream about doing it at a large commercial scale in space. Speaking of asteroid sample return missions, another similar mission launched by the Japanese uh, space exploration program, JAXA, Hayabusa 2 arrived at uh, an asteroid Ryugu at 2018, and in 2019, it uh, actually collected a sample and left the asteroid in November. Um, Hayabusa 2 is due to return back to Earth in 2020, so it's got a head start on OSIRIS-REx, but Hayabusa 2's main objective is uh, to look at basically the origins of our solar system and look for organic material that might be on the asteroid as well as um, inform uh, scientists on how the planets formed in the first place. So um, Hayabusa 2 is really cool because it, it like had an impactor to collect the regolith. Exactly. You know, they sent the lander down and they, you know, basically used a, a modified kind of shotgun-like device to break up dust and push it back into their sample collector. So it's a, a very interesting technology that they use to actually collect the samples. I think another interesting part of the Hayabusa 2 mission is the return capsule. It's a smaller version of a crew capsule. It has yeah. a small heat shield. Um, it's equipped with some parachutes and it builds upon the first Hayabusa mission. It's fairly similar. Yeah, my favorite part about Hayabusa 2 has been the three-dimensional maps of Ryugu, which is really cool because they have an orbiter uh, and because it has relatively high resolution cameras, they're able to, to take that and you can actually go online and explore this asteroid and see it from multiple angles and you get such a much better sense of the dimensions and the size uh, versus a picture, right? We're very used to seeing a picture of Saturn or a picture of Jupiter or a picture you know, of Pluto uh, and now you know, melding our better sensors and cameras on these spacecraft with our better computers, we're able to produce um, these experiences for the general public that are more interactive and help people understand what they're seeing better, which is really cool. So back in 2018, we sat down with Troy Hudson, who's the JPL Instrument Systems Engineer on InSight, and we talked about all of the new instruments that are gonna be going on that lander. Uh, one of them was HP-Cubed, which is a thermal probe that was designed to burrow into the crust of Mars and understand the thermal gradient. Uh, and we were super excited to see that experiment in action uh, and to better understand how Mars uh, works internally geologically. However, it kind of ran into a snag this year. Yeah, so uh, I've been following the HP cubed probe or the self-hammering nail or the mole, whatever you want to call it. I've been following its progress all year. And in our conversation with Troy Hudson, he talked about an anecdote where you know, they were testing it at JPL and it was doing fine. And then they put it in a vacuum chamber and just tested how it would work under Mars-like atmospheric conditions in different 
types of soil, like fine ones or coarse soil or whatever, because they didn't know what they would expect. Uh, and in that anecdote, he talked about a really strange thing that they didn't expect where the mole kind of bounced itself out of the hole it was burning into because uh, it was cavitating the soil based on the, a certain composition and a certain uh, pressure environment. And I kept remembering that conversation and that story all year because that's what kind of seemed to happen on Mars. The heat flow probe got down maybe I think six to eight inches and then started to bounce its way out. And a few different uh, theories came about, like maybe it was bouncing against a rock. Um, I was thinking of that experiment that Troy talked about. But what NASA engineers, all they had to to triage and debug this was a camera on the arm of uh, InSight looking at the thing that's holding the, the heat flow probe going in the ground. And that's they published all these pictures, too. So that's what we have to deal with. And um, it, there's no like high speed video. So you have like four frames across five minutes of time and you see it. Oh, it moved. You can see the footprints of the little holder. It moved two inches to the left. Why did it do that? And uh, the Insight team ended up trying a bunch of different things where they like put the it has like a scoop. Right. Uh, and it, they put the scoop next to the mole uh, where the hole is to compress the soil and try to like push it down. So it had something more concrete to dig into and that didn't work and yeah it's really interesting i think at the end of the year they started to make a lot more progress but um i keep following these deep dives that they're that the insight team is posting on the internet uh, on their website and it's just the lead instrument um scientist on the heat flow probe is super into it too so when you read these blog posts uh, you really feel the enthusiasm and the the care that the team has for this uh, instrument. Also, side note about InSight, the seismometers have uh, detected seismic activity on Mars and they've published their third data set to scientists to take a look at. So we'll get to uh, actually understand seismology on Mars better in the coming year. Yeah, I think it'll be interesting to, s to see articles and see papers written about the, the data from InSight. For years to come. Ten years, man. Yeah. Another thing that happened last year is after 15 years, Opportunity has stopped functioning. My battery is low and everything is dark. Is that how it goes? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Rest in peace, Opportunity. But it, it was a pretty exciting mission. I, I personally remember when I was kind of growing up reading about um, Spirit and Opportunity mm -hmm. and kind of reading about how you know the, both of those missions were or the rovers are, were built for 90 days but continued to function way beyond their designed lifespan almost 15 years yeah yeah it's kind of a kind of a cool idea of it's just the you know the, the idea of a mission a robot built to travel to a different interplanetary body and then continue functioning way beyond expected yeah and one thing that i always think about is like launched in 2003 okay this team was operating on a very tight budget so they used you know commercial off-the-shelf parts that they wanted to be confident would work so they used parts much older than 2003 technology and then here we are in 2019 still getting data from opportunity um that's it's always opportunity has been an inspiration for me when i work on projects either in my work or in my side projects personal projects whatever 
it's always been kind of the goal is to have you know design something uh well and simply enough that it can do better than I would have designed it to do you know like that's got to be such a great feeling for these uh design engineers that it just worked for so long and and so well I think one of the key assumptions that kind of set the um the design lifespan was that the solar panels would eventually be covered with dust and wouldn't generate enough power to maintain the mission and that was an assumption that we luckily found out wasn't true mm -hmm. um, because of kind of wind activity on Mars cleaning up the solar panels over time. It's definitely a very inspirational mission and while it's sad to see opportunity finally uh, go to sleep, we now have uh, Curiosity driving across the surface of Mars and a whole swath of new Martian rovers on the way uh, this year. Before we talk about Martian rovers for uh, 2020, I did want to take a look at the moon. In 2019, there were two lunar landing attempts, uh, the Beresheet lander by Space IL, and the other one was the Vikram lander from ISRO. Unfortunately, neither of them panned out, but what was interesting is that both were live streamed. And so we, the general public could uh, watch along with Mission Control for these two lunar landing attempts. I don't know, it felt really connected to these lunar landing attempts, uh, even though they're just small probes and uh, didn't pan out. So well, yeah, what, did you, what do you guys remember from Bereshi and Vikram? I think the a very notable thing to take into account is that both of those institutions, Space IL and ISRO, this is their first landing. This is a very new technological step for them. And and so you can expect some, you know, to some extent, you can expect some failures to come out of both programs um, as, as the institutions build up their knowledge. Another interesting thing is both of those missions failed during landing. So, it, you know, None of these were launch failures. None of these were transit or in space um, kind of your your quality assurance issues. These are kind of more operational failures during the landing. Yeah, and from what we can stage. tell, operational landers is key because uh, again, these were live streamed, and you know people poured over this data that they could get, and it doesn't look like any of the hardware really failed. Uh, you know, uh, bare sheet might have had like a flight computer reset during the landing sequence. Um, Vikram started tumbling uh, during the descent phase, but who knows, maybe that was a hardware failure, but it doesn't seem like it. So uh, I don't know, TJ, what did you think of these two uh, lunar landers? It was very exciting to see Space IL finally launch because that was the kind of end game for the Google Lunar X Prize. That was coming off of the Ansari X-Prize, which gave us Spaceship One, which has then given us uh, Virgin Galactic and Spaceship Two. Uh, however, they were so delayed and all the other competitors uh, couldn't make it across the finish line that the actual prize uh, was kind of withdrawn. But Space IL still paid for the launch. They still launched it, I think, a lot for that, that personal pride of having a, a commercial team build that lander. And it was very unfortunate that uh, the landing did not go successfully. 
The ISRO is also, as you mentioned, the first landing attempt by the Indian Space Program. And there's a ton of national pride. You have the Indian president watching. You have lots of politicians, you know, a lot of, of government intensity. And the interesting part about that whole situation is they live streamed it. The lander failed. And there was some amateur analysis that talked about like, oh, like, Maybe it failed at this point, uh, and just trying to figure out what happened. And ISRO was pretty adamant that uh, we had lost communication, but it was, the rover might, or the lander might have been intact. Uh, and they kept that up for over a month. Uh, and eventually, photographic evidence showed that the the lander impacted hard, blew up, spread over across the lunar surface. Uh, but it was interesting to see that kind of national pride of like, there's there's still hope that this actually worked um, pushing forward, which is really great to see, right? You want people to be enthusiastic about space uh, and you want governments to be enthusiastic about space so that they fund uh, follow-ups. And it's great to see Space IL get external funding for a second attempt and the ISRO to go at it again in the future. Um, So it's great that although both of these were failures, we're going to continue to see these kinds of small landers from these kinds of organizations continue to fly and and try to land. All right, so let's move on to uh, some notable missions that happened in 2019 that have seen more development since the last time we talked about them on the show. Yeah, so first up, Starlink 1 and 2. This kind of came out of a little bit of left field. Uh, We've been talking about Starlink for four or five years now. And we saw the first two test satellites, Tintin A and B, go up. And uh, those had been two satellites that were running as a ride share on another payload. And we had a general like pictures of what they kind of looked like. But when Starlink V0.9, mm-hmm. as, as SpaceX likes to call it now, uh, showed up with a fairing stacked with 60 satellites, I think that really surprised almost everyone. Biggest payload by mass. Uh, they had 60 operational satellites. They had this new format that was unlike pretty much any other satellite format where the individual satellite buses were also the payload adapters. Um, so there wasn't a central uh, mounting mechanism. Uh, and we also saw that beautiful card deck fan out deployment mechanism um, on that first launch. And so that was really interesting. And then to see a second launch in 2019 as well and in 2020, they have even more ambition plans. Uh, very exciting. Um, now, a couple other takeaways is with Starlink, uh, there was some controversy with the visible light reflected by the 60 satellites. And, you know, at the time, I remember making a comment that these are satellites in a low Earth orbit. Uh, they're not fully deployed. They're going to raise their orbits, become dimmer. They're going to actively adjust their solar panels to become dimmer. Um, We've seen over the past six months that, yes, they've gone dimmer, but they're still causing problems for local observers and astronomers. And so SpaceX actually, you know, made a public statement that we're we're working on new technologies and new engineering decisions to make them less bright. Uh, We're going to work on this, uh, which is good to see. Uh, The one concerning bit is, as part of that statement, they also said that they did not anticipate or think about this problem, which is, you know, if you're coming from a constellation design, the most well-known historical constellation is Iridium, and Iridium flares are the most 
disruptive and bright uh, satellite flares you can see in the night sky. So I thought, you know, they probably should have thought about that, um, which is unfortunate. But uh, the, what's interesting is that on Starlink Flight 3, I guess, we're going to see at least one satellite covered in uh, coatings to reduce brightness. And maybe by early or middle of the next year, we'll see the result of those efforts. So uh, that's going to be continuing to be this, this controversy and this contention between telecommunications and astronomy. And it was already controversial from the first launch of 60 satellites. And then just this year, we, we, we saw two launches of, you know, these very endgame prototypes of what Starlink will be, right? It's missing a few key technologies, but they're basically what the Starlink satellites are going to be in the end. And we've seen, we've seen two launches out of a planned, what, 24? And they've already eclipsed the uh, other, you know, second and third largest satellite constellations in orbit. So SpaceX has basically the most satellites in orbit of any one company. And soon, you know, within the next couple of years, if they keep this up, they'll have more Starlink satellites in orbit than all other operational satellites from every other company combined. Right. And so quickly the scale is becoming uh, real. Before it was kind of like, oh, wow, that's a lot. 12,000. Holy cow. You know, but it's just a number. And now people are like, holy cow, I'm seeing so many satellites through my images when I'm trying to image a galaxy. And they're barely on, they're not even version 1.0 yet, you know? Uh, so the thing that's really impressive to me is the operational scale that Starlink is having is really setting in. Um, but uh, I don't know, I'm still, the more I think about Starlink, I, I'm really eager but cautiously optimistic to see this really happen in terms of uh, an actual approach to telecommunications. We have one, well, I guess two tweets from Elon. One is sending this through Starlink, Starlink fingers crossed, and the other one, yay, it worked. Uh, so I guess it's working, but we have yet to see really demonstrative uh, performance from, from Starlink. But, well, I'm, I'm going to definitely watch this really, really closely. Um, and from an engineering perspective, it's just a different mindset. And um, yeah, it, it bothers me that SpaceX really hasn't seemed to, it doesn't appear that SpaceX has been taking that forward thinking thought process with them past the hardware. So like the operations doesn't seem to be catching up with the forward thinking of what it's going to be like to operate 10,000 satellites at once. Yeah, so Starlink was also brought in some controversy where the ESA published that uh, that's their EOLIS Earth Observation Satellite had to maneuver away from colliding with the Starlink satellite. And this little mini controversy back in September uh, really called into question the satellite operations, where um, apparently uh, if an email didn't get read in time and the ESA... Uh, thought they were being ignored, and so they spent the propellant to prevent a collision. Uh, and that really shows that, you know, while these uh, collision avoidance maneuvers are very rare and space is very big, once you start adding uh, dozens and hundreds of satellites, that very low percent chance has to increase. And there needs to be responsible command and control of these satellites 
to mitigate this risk and prevent it from happening because a collision is a bad time for everyone, uh, Starlink, uh, ESA, and then anyone who's trying to launch satellites. And there are a few case studies on where that communication breaks down and a collision does happen. One thing I do want to say is that all the information necessary to avoid a collision in space is basically public. So the U.S. government does maintain kind of like a, a database and like publishes alerts to the parties involved when a potential collision is uh, predicted. Uh, but you can go to like celestrack.org and filter by collision events that might happen. And just as a general person, you can view on your desktop computer or your phone even when two satellites might collide. So like, yes, it's a controversy that that operations broke down between the communication broke down between those two. And it was kind of a, I don't know, it was a craziness. Um, I think that just kind of reiterates my point about like, come on, Starlink, you got to get your, <laughs> got to get your operations together to meet the, uh, the goal that you've set for yourselves with such a large constellation. What do yeah. you think, Ferris? I, I think collision avoidance maneuvers are not as infrequent as one might think. And at least from what I've seen, you know, even this, International Space Station performs multiple collision avoidance maneuvers every year. It's really what that shows is the breakdown of kind of organization or communication. Um, and we might see more of that, or it might become more of a challenge. The more satellites you have in orbit, the more collisions avo- collision avoidance maneuvers you have to, to take. Um, just a brief aside on, on this topic, what we might see is that, you know, some regulation might come out or like a standardization of procedure might come out to say, okay, everybody, you have to do this. So far, it's been left up to the companies and the parties involved to figure it out with yourselves. Okay, you and you, you're about to collide, figure it out. Um, And by about to collide, you mean it might happen this time and with this percent chance. Go figure it out for yourselves and tell us what happened. Um, And so far, the the industry's been, you know, keeping up with that and and being responsible and good stewards of the space environment. Hopefully that continues. Yeah, but I think another interesting thing to see with Starlink is the rate, the rate of improvement. Um, you know, the first launch was version 0.9. The second launch was version 1.0, which is what was the last launch. And next launch, you know, we're expecting to see at least one of the Starlink satellites have a coating to reduce reflectivity, and at least towards Earth. And I think I think that's an interesting. It shows again the SpaceX ethos of iteration. Um, right. No Falcon Nine is the same, really. Uh, do you think we'll continue to see a rapid pace of change, or do you think it'll plateau within twenty twenty? I think we'll see an asymptote at some point. I don't know if it is next year, but I mean, even Falcon Nines have asymptoted to kind of a more standard design at this point. But I think it'll be interesting to see what that looks like on the Starlink end. Last year was also a big year for commercial crew. Lots of uh, news, lots of events, lots of progress, lots of delays, lots of unexpected scenarios. Mm-hmm. Um, we saw Demo Mission 1 for SpaceX um, fly to the ISS. We also saw it blow up on a launch pad abort test. Yeah, so uh, DM-1 went to the space station uncrewed uh, in March. Uh, it was in space from March 2nd to March 8th and came back to Earth on its parachutes, landed safely. But during uh, filling the propellant on the pad for a launch abort, 
procedure sequence, it unexpectedly exploded catastrophically. For, so that, that same capsule that went to the space station is now uh, bits of shrapnel, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that was on April 20th. So since then, you know, SpaceX has been investigating the failure and they seem back on track. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the biggest delay is, A, they had to investigate the failure, uh, which they um, narrowed down to a slug of uh, nitrous tetroxide had leaked into a propellant line. And then when they pressurized the system, that slug got shot into a piece of titanium. And uh, that created an explosion, which then tore the whole capsule apart, blew up the tanks. Um, the, I think the bigger delay was they were planning on reusing the capsule from DM-1 for the in-flight abort test. And that's something we're hoping to see in the beginning of 2020. And so they had to take the second capsule off the assembly line, which is going to be used for DM-2, which was going to carry people. And then that is going to be used for the in-flight abort test. And then the third capsule will be used for astronauts on DM-2. And so that's disrupting the production schedule, which caused even more delays. So the investigation plus disrupting manufacturing really delayed their timeline. Because if you had asked pretty much anyone, 2019 is supposed to be the year a commercial crew. Even you know a pessimistic estimate would be like, oh, by Christmas, someone will have flown a human uh, into space. And neither uh, provider has. NASA Administrator uh, Jim Bridenstine gave SpaceX a slap on the wrist when this uh, when DM1 blew up or when the uh, capsule blew up, um, kind of like you know scolding them a little bit on Twitter if you can do that. Uh, but then the NASA has been relatively cordial through uh, the investigation process. So I don't know drama. It's also important to note that they have also been conducting a lot of tests on their parachutes. Initially, they were trying to use Draco thrusters to land, and that plan was scrapped. Um, At NASA's request, right? Mm-hmm. To meet the safety requirements. Um, and that has also added to the schedule of just testing the parachutes, coming up with different versions of it. And over the last few months, SpaceX has been conducting drop tests with parachutes, with the different versions that parachutes do. So that added to the schedule. It's been very interesting to see parachutes really come to the forefront as an issue. Uh, The SpaceX have experienced tearing of their parachutes on the uh, lines leading from the capsule up to the parachute. And so they actually had to strengthen those. And because they have a fixed mass budget, they had to thin out the parachute material of the actual canopies. And so that's really a, a very big design. And, and SpaceX, uh, it, with a joint statement with NASA, was talking about how they're really pushing the boundaries of, of parachute physics uh, and challenging s- assumptions that were made back in the 1950s and 60s when they first started using parachutes for capsules. Uh, and this information is actually being shared between SpaceX and Boeing to make sure that both capsules are as safe as possible. Uh, and then another related parachute issue, uh, Boeing had a uh, launch abort test uh, from the ground, similar to what SpaceX did several years ago, and uh, one of the three parachutes failed to deploy because a pin was not inserted uh, manually before flight. And that pin was unable to be visually inspected after it had been, the the full assembly had been assembled, Um, which is not a good look uh, if you're 
flying crew uh, to have a, a manual uh, human-in-the-loop procedure uh, fail and not be checked. Uh, but because it's not an engineering decision or a software decision, the procedure is able to be updated. You're able to have another person mainly verify. And so Boeing was very confident that that specific parachute issue wouldn't happen again for them. Yeah, but uh, that didn't stop more delays or, or more interesting events with Starliner. Uh, TJ, can you talk a little bit about Starliner's demo mission OFT-1? Yeah, so uh, Boeing had a pretty rough year. Uh, earlier on the year, they had a static firing of their uh, abort motors, similar to what SpaceX did where their capsule exploded. But in Boeing's case, they had a fuel leak uh, on their test stand, which uh, is generally not good. These are hypergolic fuels, uh, and so if there's a fuel leak on the pad or after landing, that can be dangerous to the astronauts inside and to recovery crews. But after an investigation and some fixes and changes, uh, they moved to Orbital Flight Test 1, which was an uncrewed demo mission similar to DM-1. Uh, so this launched on December 20th, and it was supposed to dock to the International Space Station. But there was an issue where the mission uh, clock on board did not properly get uh, synced. And so inside the capsule, the software uh, thought it was 11 hours ahead. It attempted a specific uh, maneuvering, uh, orbital maneuver, which wasted a lot of fuel and actually ran up the duty cycle for some thrusters. Uh, so there's some small reaction control thrusters that are only rated for X number of seconds of firing per mission. And these were fired for much longer than that. Uh, and so the capsule wasn't in that good of a shape. They had used about uh, 25% of their fuel. Uh, they had thrusters that had been become warm and they weren't 100% confident. And so the docking to the International Space Station was aborted. And so the flight actually only lasted about two days and they made a, a very successful pinpoint landing on uh, White Sands Missile Test Range. They actually landed right on the runway that the space shuttle used to land in White Sands. Uh, so a very eventful two and a half days for Boeing and the Boeing mission operators. Um, but some other notable uh, successes was this was the first flight of the new Atlas V with no fairing and two engines on the Centaur. Uh, and that ch uh, change was made so that the Atlas can fly a, a more shallow trajectory um, and it needs more uh, thrust to safely get it uh, into orbit. And that way, if there's an issue with Centaur or the capsule, they can abort uh, back to Earth without having a steep plunge. Yeah, so commercial crew, like you said, Ferris, a bunch of delays, but very interesting to watch. And like it's, it's progress, so it's kind of a mixed bag. Um, and both crewed missions will be better because of it. Um, I really... You know, I, I'm kind of glad that the parachute issues came up. Parachutes are one of those things that seems like, you know, I could be wrong, but it seems like, oh, it's worked forever since the Apollo days. We're basically using the same technology from, uh, you know, the 70s for parachutes and, and capsule descent. Um, just add more parachutes to meet the mass that they're going to be carrying and you're going to be good. Add an extra parachute for redundancy. You're going to be good. And to see things challenge those assumptions, see problems, make SpaceX reconsider the design or make uh, make the Boeing team with Starliner reconsider their 
assumptions since Starliner did have a parachute fail to deploy um, and reconsider whether two parachutes rather than three is enough, things like that. Challenging those assumptions is definitely for the best, especially when we're sending astronauts in them. Yeah. I, I think really this kind of shows that you can't take anything for granted with space or space missions, yeah. even technologies that you've used for decades. Yeah, it's definitely much better that the Super Draco thruster system had an incident when it was uncrewed, sitting on the ground during a propulsion test, and that the parachute issues all happened during drop tests, then to find that on a test mission with people inside. Uh, That's why the development programs have those testing milestones, and when they find out these issues and they're able to fix them before people actually step inside, that, I think, gives uh, the astronauts more confidence in the vehicle. So acceptable delays, you know, like it's being commercial crew is way behind the original, way behind the original schedule that they signed up for. But like you, you can't be mad that these you can be mad that the problems happened, I guess. But to be mad that the programs are delayed because of them, like you, you they have to happen, right? So Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose this shows that the tests are doing their job, their job. We are finding those issues. I think it's fair to hope for for those programs not to have you know those issues. A lot of them you know seem to be operational, you know, a missed bin, um a misadjusted mission clock, um yeah. You know, an oversight in a design here or there. I mean, it happens, but one can also be a little bit um wanting for more. A few more topics for 2019. Let's talk about rockets in particular. Lots of rocket development in 2019. Uh, We'll start with NASA's Artemis program. TJ? Yes, 2019 was really the year of Artemis. Uh, We kind of jumped out. uh, If you looked into January, February of this year, you had NASA SLS with some delays and some, some progress. Uh, but its its series of missions were to build something called LOP-G, the Lunar Orbital Platform Gateway, and there wasn't a ton of enthusiasm for that. Uh, however, we had a huge shift in policy and a new uh, increased momentum with the Vice President, Mike Pence, uh, declaring that the NASA should have an accelerated timeline to land humans on the surface of the moon by 2024, and labeled that initiative Artemis. Uh, and so that brought in kind of a whirlwind of change. It's like, can NASA do this, hit this timeline? Uh, and the ripples of that uh, really uh, affected a bunch of things. Uh, so we actually have contracts being sent out um, for uh, commercial lunar resupply services, so, so small unmanned landers to bring payloads to the surface of the moon. There are contracts opened for developing uh, a lunar lander to actually uh, take people to the surface of the moon. That space station, LOP-G, has been kind of downsized and minimized to the a kind of a minimal viable product. And there's potential for commercial providers to provide cargo uh, to the to lunar orbit to support SLS missions. So SLS would be sending Orion with crew and larger modules, and something like uh, New Glenn or Falcon Heavy would be delivering other supplies in between missions. So honestly, a huge whirlwind. Uh, 
The second bit about this is uh, NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstine, I actually need to give him a ton of credit uh, because he uh, came in, he's got this new initiative coming from the executive branch uh, to really push and go fast. And he's been very public about pushing contractors to, to be better and to be faster. Uh, an unfortunate bit of fallout from this is uh, Bill Gerstenmeier uh, was kind of pushed out of NASA. Bill Gerstenmeier, who had been at NASA for 14 years, the director of, of human spaceflight and operations, was uh, kind of forced out uh, unceremoniously. Uh, NASA went several months without having a head of human spaceflight, and then Douglas Levere was brought in in October to take over that role. And uh, say what you want about uh, Mr. Gerstenmeier, but this is really kind of a, a public um, forcing function for the human spaceflight department at NASA. It's like, we're making some changes, we have this new timeline. Whether that switch out actually leads to the end result that uh, Mr. Brian Stein is looking for, we'll find out. The biggest obstacle to Artemis is, is definitely Congress. Uh, they, throughout the entire 2020, were not very clear on how much this program was going to cost in 2019 and 2020, let alone the years heading up to 2024. And the funding bill that Congress passed towards the end of this year doesn't fully fund the lunar lander. And so if that program doesn't get fully funded and they're able to uh, kickstart it and make significant progress, that's going to delay any landing. And so it's a very large, politically complicated uh, project. However, we did see some progress on SLS. So SLS had been the keystone for Artemis and Orion and pretty much any NASA project. But we actually saw the first whole core stage uh, be completed, have engines mounted, and for it to be shipped off for uh, static fire testing, uh, which is awesome. That That is almost a, a real rocket, almost ready for flight. Yeah, Lopti always kind of felt like, uh, I mean, it was kind of, it was branded as a stepping stone to Mars. Uh, but since NASA has really uh, narrowed their focus to let's go to the moon, let's have humans on the moon, um, rebranding as Artemis uh, strengthened that focus. And I think the Artemis contracts being sent out and everything like you said, TJ, has really uh, reinvigorated uh, not only uh, development toward getting to the moon, but also SLS progress now that SLS kind of has what feels like a more concrete uh, mission to carry. Um, one thing about Gerstenmeier is that he uh, was in the his administrative position since 2004. You know, he saw oversaw the ending of the shuttle program. And so he had arguably a lot of influence in the direction of human spaceflight at NASA uh, since he was uh, since he started in that position. And that coincides with, uh, you know, this might be blunt, but like a stagnation in human spaceflight since then. After the shuttle, like, we still don't have commercial crew flying yet. And with him out and someone else in, uh, TJ, you called it a forcing function. Uh, I called it like kind of a, a wake-up call, like we're taking this seriously, uh, is what Jim Bridenstine is take, trying to say to NASA and its subcontractors. What do you think, Ferris? I I am uh, cautiously optimistic, perhaps. 
I think we'll see a lot of progress moving forward. It's really cool seeing this program come together. But as is the case with a lot of NASA programs, a lot of the goals can be influenced by the politics of the time and by the current administration and changes in administration can kind of derail programs that it, sometimes you can look back at the Constellation program that was replaced. I mean, that's pretty basically the same program. We're just kind of like seeing a new perspective on those original goals. Yeah, I, I, I think we'll see a lot of progress. I mean, we can already see some of the contracts going out and some technological development and missions are being planned. But that you know, 2024 goal for Artemis is very, definitely very uh, aggressive. Blue Origin is taking a stab at this lunar excitement. And we've talked about Blue Moon in the past, all the way back in 2016, when Jeff Bezos kind of published his original vision for Blue Origin uh, operating on the moon. And now in 2019, Blue Origin has revealed hardware that they want to put on the moon. They've got, we've got BE-7, which is a very small scale uh, rocket engine made for a lander. The Blue Moon Lunar Lander is their pitch at you know, operating with Ar- the Artemis program and um, putting cargo and maybe people on the moon. But it's it's real hardware. You know, it's not kind of, I don't know, it's weird. I think it's really interesting that Jeff Bezos released a white paper saying, hey, it'd be really nice if we could build a lunar lander to drop cargo on the moon in 2016. And for the political and NASA environment in 2019 to say, yeah, 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 we really need lunar landers to put things on the moon and let's Blue Origin actually propose a solution. Um, so that kind of gives you an idea of this, this initial idea versus being into a, a point where everyone's ready to actually think about and build something like that. So you say the technology um, or the desire to do something predated the actual opportunity to get it done? Or do you think that the Blue Moon White Paper influenced uh, NASA's policymaking strategy? I think it definitely influenced it somewhat. Uh, Obviously, Artemis was a huge change to the status quo. And if Artemis didn't happen, there probably would not have been an opportunity for a Blue Moon proposal to start development. Uh, But it did. And... They had done the, the groundwork to prepare themselves to compete and build something like this. Uh, I think it's a really interesting concept. Uh, Blue Origin has fantastic engineers. Uh, they have a bunch of experience building smaller rocket engines so with New Shepard, with Hydrolox, and as well as their smaller uh, hopper uh, projects before New Shepard. And they have NASA contracts to develop uh, landing software and landing algorithms to land on the surface of the moon. So they're already slowly on the way here. Uh, the Blue Moon also feels like the first, you know, real Artemis contract that's uh, making a lot of headway, uh, in part because it was probably began before the Artemis push. But um, seeing them work, to, seeing Blue Origin work together with NASA um, really quite publicly um, which is not always the case of Blue Origin, um, invigorates uh, the whole industry around it. What do you think? Definitely. Uh, yeah, w- with Blue Moon specifically, 
it's all it's been part of the blue origin vision of moving industry off of earth and using space as an industrial kind of zone for humanity definitely the artemis program presents a very like a good opportunity for for blue moon um to be to be used in a commercial sense to provide services to nasa and for context the blue moon proposal that is actually competing for contracts is not the same as the one that was in that white paper uh, Blue Origin's actually partnering with existing aerospace contractors, so Lockheed Martin and Northrop Grumman, and a company called Draper. And so while Blue Origin is building kind of the, the descent stage to the lander, Lockheed is actually building the ascent stage, which would hold people, so that would be involved the life support as well as an ascent engine. Northrop Grumman is building a orbital transfer vehicle to go uh, from uh, whatever LOPG looks like as part of Artemis, uh, to the lander and back down to the surface. And then Draper's actually working on the descent uh, avionics and software. And so blue, it's, this is Blue Origin kind of narrowing on what they do well, which is building uh, these kind of uh, throttable engines and building the base of the lander and partnering with other companies that have a lot of experience as well. Uh, one company that's not partnering with other companies to do uh, large missions to space and potentially outside Earth orbit is SpaceX. How about that segue for Starship? Um, the evolution of what BFR, ITS, whatever you want to call it, is the Starship, which looks like the Tintin rocket. We've talked about this in the past. And uh, one of the first major milestones for getting this massive, massive uh, rocket technology off the ground is the Star Hopper. And we remember back to Grasshopper uh, test when SpaceX was still figuring out how to get a full-scale orbital rocket to propulsively land. They went out in their um, to their test range in McGregor, Texas, and had a big fuel tank with a rocket on the bot- a rocket engine on the bottom. It took off and landed. That was Grasshopper, and they took that uh, philosophy to a whole other scale with Starship, with um, and Starhopper actually had a launch. It went into the air, hovered for a little bit, moved over, and landed. Huge milestone. This is happening. It happened in a matter of months from being, you know, announced to the test taking place. It's it's just insane. The scale, the speed. Yeah. This year is when the new design was announced with using stainless steel and methane with evaporative cooling. And we went from that reveal to a hopper test in a matter of months. Yeah, Starship has been this crazy thing where the design details have been changing so much and so frequently, it's been super hard to cover. And so publicly. Yeah, so like, you know, end of 2018, uh, you know, SpaceX really wasn't able to get funding for Starship. And they're like, well, like, how do we, how do, we do this entirely in-house? We have Starlink potentially, and we have our launch revenue from launching satellites, how do we build a giant rocket all in-house? And you, you see them just out in the field welding sheet metal together, uh, sheet stainless steel. And there's also, there's also two completely independent engineering sites. There was uh, Boca Chica and Cocoa Beach uh, in Florida and in Texas, both building whole versions. So while Starhopper 
was finished uh, first in Texas and actually flew, which is the first actual flight with a, a Methalox uh, full-flow stage combustion engine, which is a great milestone in itself. You then had these two different designs happening. And while SpaceX actually had a whole press event where they had stacked a full Starship with, with uh, aero surfaces, uh, which looked a little janky, they invited, invited media and they said, this is what we're going to try to fly multiple kilometers in the air. And within a month, it had uh, exploded. And so we've actually seen a, another huge shift in everything we expected and we thought where now the uh, Cocoa Beach uh, facility has been basically closed. All those engineers have either been uh, laid off or moved to Texas. And Mark 1 has been scrapped. And now they're building what SpaceX is now calling serial number 1 because naming can never be consistent. And we're seeing an iteration on manufacturing techniques. One of the biggest takeaways from the Mark, or the Mark 1 unveil was the dry uh, mass of that starship, which was way too heavy to be practical, right? They obviously were gonna to need to change many things to cut the weight to make it something that could go on a super heavy, be refueled, go to the Mars and moon. And changing manufacturing techniques from plate steel to coiled steel, having much longer rings with less welding. Uh, and then even what we've seen in the last month and a half, where they're moving away from open air welding uh, done by hand to machine welding inside a windbreak, uh, inside of basically a tent, which is uh, SpaceX and Elon's favorite permanent structure. Uh, it's all just happening crazy fast. Uh, so... Maybe we see a finished Starship in 2020. Maybe they, they crack a couple tanks again, and who knows. But it's, it's insane, the rate of progress and the number of changes and decisions they go through. You know, it really wasn't that long ago where we were speculating on, or we were getting excited about, you know, a nine meter wide carbon fiber fuel tank, which has now been scrapped, right? Uh, and so... Yeah, even the evaporative cooling for a Starship has been scrapped. Right. And this is Elon's pet project. It's clear that this is Elon's pet project in terms of uh, just by how he talks about this on on Twitter. Um, but he seems very involved in the design process, at least, or gets excited about the design process and shares maybe a little bit too much. But seeing the engineering happen in real time, the changes happen in real time. Um, I'll talk about this a little bit later, but it's really getting the public involved in terms of excitement. And so other companies don't often show the design process because showing your failures and showing things like your uh, test rig unexpectedly exploding um, or, you know, your something exploding on the launch pad, like it's embarrassing to have a failure happen in public. SpaceX from the beginning basically has been live streaming every launch, including their failures. They're doing all this stuff at McGregor, Texas in the open and it's visible to people that want to park outside the launch facility or the, the manufacturing facility, basically because it's too big to be indoors. But bringing the public along for the ride in the design process for the successes and the failures just gives such a better uh, sense of progress than having than only announcing when you're done. You know what I mean? So even though the design is changing and it might not look the same uh, or, you know, it might not look anywhere close to what it is today, even a year from now, we feel like 
they're making a lot of progress uh, just because we've been able to see work happen. So, I don't know. I'm very excited. This Starship has been 2019, the story uh, to watch, and uh, I don't see any end to that in the coming year. On a side note, which um, TJ, you mentioned that you might want to edit this out, but you mentioned that there's no more evaporative cooling on on Starship. Elon tweeted that it's gonna. It, they're Surprise. just radiating the heat away, right? What? Yeah. See, I'm I'm even struggling to keep up. <laughs> See, I this is why I just don't keep up every day. I'm just like I'm just gonna check in every once in a while and see what's going on. Any, it's a whole thing. Everything is work in progress. Uh, I I like to keep up just to it's fun. You know, as the engineer in me just sees it interesting. It's fun, but yeah. I. You know, criticizing things and speculating on what the actual end product will be is futile, you know, Mm -hmm. but it's really cool to think about, you know, is this possible? Is evaporative cooling even possible? And, you know, sometimes the answer is yes. Sometimes the answer is "Eh, maybe not. Yeah. It's it's interesting seeing the trade-offs and the design decisions being made because you can learn or at least try to understand the kind of the decision factors going into those designs. Yeah. And the inspirational aspect of it, of something going with stainless steel, going with evaporative cooling, um, getting people to challenge their, uh, you know, uh, assumptions for what a spaceship should be and just consider all options. You know, why didn't, you know, actually stainless steel makes sense for this, you know, getting people to think differently about it um, is a win, especially for up and coming engineers that are going to high school, going to college right now and will be. Uh, designing and building spaceships of the future. Definitely. Oh, wow. Unintentional segue to spaceships of the future. Let's do a small sat launcher roundup for 2019. What happened with small launchers? Over the last few years, you know, we've seen a rise of the small sat launcher. A lot of companies, groups have, you know, come together to put a new class of rocket, and that is to launch small spacecraft, you know, small satellites, CubeSats. And so over the last year, we saw, for example, Relativity Space raise a big round of funding, $140 million for their 3D printed um, Terran 1 launcher and their Stargate giant 3D printer. Um, We also saw, on the other hand, Vector declare bankruptcy. Um, And so they were also a promising small sat launcher. And that's with government contracts. Yeah. Vector had a, what, a military uh, rapid launch or rapid response launch contract in the bag for development and still went belly up. Is that right? Correct. You know, we also saw Rocket Lab launch a number of missions very successfully. Yeah. We've seen them announce reusability, which was surprising. That was something Peter Beck, basically at the beginning, Peter Beck, Rocket Lab CEO, said, you know, we're not going to do reusability because it doesn't make sense on our scale. But this year, it, he's changed course. He's rethought uh, mm-hmm. the idea. It's different, though. It's different reusability. Yes. It's a different design for it. And maybe perhaps one of the reasons for that is we also saw um, SpaceX release a Falcon 9 SmallSat rideshare program where the price point is really competitive. They've offered... You know, starts at a million dollars for 200, 200 or so kilograms. I'm sure after you know doing all the things you need to do to launch a spacecraft, that number would rise to a decent amount. But you know, compare that to 5.7 million 
million dollars for a launch for a dedicated launch on an electron and that puts puts some pressure right and the um, spacex uh, ride share would be one launch dedicated to small sat missions only rather than like it's where everybody's a secondary payload basically is that right i think so there's also i mean there there's also been a number of starlink rideshare missions announced too um but uh let's talk about rocket lab's reusability for a second they use a typical fuel but the in, the novel part about electron i guess where it gets its name is that they use electric turbo pumps um and so they ended up kind of dropping batteries as they expend them uh, along the way. The way they're approaching reusability is different from SpaceX in that um, in some ways it's more conventional historically. When the rocket comes back down, it'll have parachutes. A helicopter with a hook will snag uh, the descending stage from the air, which is something that sounds weird when if you kind of are more familiar with SpaceX's reusability program but is not unusual, historically speaking, because NASA's been doing this for decades. Uh, back when, you know, images were brought back down from space in film canisters, uh, they would come down over the ocean, and then a helicopter would snag them out of the air with, uh, with a hook. So it, it's just cool that, I don't know, something that seems so sure, we've seen a, a, major, uh, a major figure here, Peter Beck, actually reconsider um, it's just another way that uh, we're seeing this industry change on such a rapid scale. Yeah, and it's interesting that their their motivations. Uh, Rocket Labs price is about five point seven million, and their main motivation publicly for pursuing usability is not to reduce the price, but to increase launch rate. They say that if they can recover lo- rockets, it's like building a second factory. And so while Electron and Rocket Lab are trying to build, make their factory more efficient and build more factory space, reusability is really for them to uh, launch more rockets more quickly. And Rocket Lab actually hit their 10th successful launch uh, this year, which is a wonderful uh, accomplishment. And on that launch, they actually successfully got the Electron first stage to survive atmospheric re-entry which is one of the harder aspects about reusability, is actually keeping the rocket structure intact uh, as it goes from very less less dense upper air into thick lower atmosphere. And so while they haven't installed parachutes and they haven't installed uh, all the other things they'll need for reusability, they're able to get a first stage to hit the ocean intact, uh, which is a big step forward, which is fantastic. You know, maybe that launch rate is that uh, extra factor into the equation that made Peter Beck change his mind because uh, if you only consider launch cost maybe the math doesn't work out and in it making sense to do all the design and development um, and work to recover a rocket but once you get that launch rate in there again second factory as you mentioned TJ that's where uh, you know the nexus of different trade-offs come together to make reusability make sense on that on Electrons scale. All right. Uh, last, last major topic from 2019. Saving the best for last, aren't we? Space Wars. Space Wars. We actually talked about um, Space Force with uh, a guest in 2019 with Marcia Smith from Space Policy Online. We kind of talked about how uh, policy becomes a thing in the space industry, how it interacts with the industry. And we also asked about Space Force. Um, 
which is, TJ, what is, what is the Space Force nowadays? So the Space Force, I think it was originally announced in 2018, the week we were in Spaceport America. And the general concept is, uh, when initially pitched, was to make a new branch of the United States Armed Forces. So we have the Air Force, the Army, the Navy, the Marines, and the Coast Guard. This would make Space Force a new branch of that. Um, And so that was the initial proposal. Uh, To understand how it currently works, the Air Force currently has the uh, U.S. Space Command. And they're responsible for all of the military uh, spy satellites and communication satellites. And they, prov- they, they will manage and maintain and build new ones and launch new ones. Uh, so they're responsible for the United States space assets. And so the intent with this proposal was by making it a separate branch of the military, that branch would have more prestige and more political willpower to advocate for its mission. So rather than being a department within the Air Force, it could be on equal footing and it would represent the increasing importance of space now that uh, China and Russia have much more dedicated space assets. They're launching uh, even more than ever before. Uh, So that was the initial proposal. And this has always been a politically uh, complicated issue. And... Unfortunately, the end results that we got uh, at the end of, of 2019 with as part a smallest part of the government funding bill is that uh, we now have a department called the Space Force. It exists within the Air Force, and it's basically the U.S. Space Command. Uh, if you try finding the U.S. Space Command's Twitter, uh, they actually went to the company Twitter and, and changed their username from Space Command to Space Force. Uh, and they're going to get new uniforms and patches and names and, and whatnot, and they're most likely going to continue uh, just as they were before, except now with a, a cooler name. So Space Force was just a lot of drama at the end of the day. What do you guys think the actual tangible impact will be of Space Force going forward? Do you have any opinions? I think like DJ said, it's a very politically complex issue. I think I find it a little bit hard to comment on it just because it has to deal a lot with the intricacies of you know the organizational structure within the Department of Defense and all the armed branches and you know arguments for improved organizational efficiency all are things that are very can be complex to assess. I think when you hear Space Force and you think Space Marines or Starfleet or things like that, we're never going to have something like that unless people convince politicians to press for more importance on space, right? The Air Force and the military has certain needs with their handling, uh, but until we have more emphasis and more need and we need to expand that department and expand their role then Space Force is going to still be just a bunch of of satellite operators, really, uh, doing great work, um, but we're not going to have Space Marines uh, anytime soon. Overall, 2019, uh, in retrospect, in a few words, a year of excitement. For me, uh, there was a lot of hype and public excitement for space missions. Uh, We saw publicly a lot of development happen. Um, across all aspects of the industry. We had a lot of major scientific missions. We had a lot of 
uh, tech demos, um, of course, Starlink and Starhopper, um, SLS getting a lot of good coverage, and Jim Bridenstine being really uh, entertaining to listen to. So he was he's been very active on Twitter and you know being blunt, not being dry administrative uh, with his uh, rhetoric. And so it's been very exciting to watch as a fan of space. And I think it's preparing the entire general public to be excited about space instead of thinking about, you know, well, why aren't we on the moon yet? Because Apollo did it. It's more of like, hell yeah, let's get uh, things in space. Let's watch these rockets go up. Let's get excited about these sample return missions. Let's go to Mars. Let's go to the moon. Um, And it's very much looking ahead rather than looking back. And I think 2019 was a real inflection point in terms of that public viewpoint. Uh, I would call 2019 a year of buildup. So we had fewer flagship science missions, but a lot of things are being built by Blue Origin, NASA, SpaceX. These are all very long lead time items, but they will should all uh, be ready to go in 2020. So Commercial Crew is a great example, Artemis 1, may make it in 2020 as well, the first flight of SLS. And we should see uh, Blue Origin uh, fly people on New Shepard and potentially see an unveiling of a completed uh, version of New Glenn as well. So I'm really excited for that. Along the same lines, I think 2019 has been a year of development. You know, we have a lot of new organizations attempting new missions, kind of like ISRO and Space IL, um, kind of having new lessons learned. Uh, SpaceX attempting to develop a commercial crew vehicle along with Boeing and also learning new lessons. Um, and so we definitely have a lot of buildup and development happening that might fuel um, missions for next year. And perhaps that's a, this is a good... Um, transition to talking about what's coming up in 2020. Yeah, let's spend the rest of the time here today looking forward for the coming year. These are the things that we're going to be watching uh, and are are excited about in 2020. I'll go first. Mars 2020. It says it right there in the name. It's got to launch this year. Uh, Mars 2020 is uh, basically uh, the follow-up to Curiosity Rover. It basically looks the same. Uh, It's got a lot of new instruments uh, on board, including um, an instrument and and technology to collect a sample and store it. Uh, The idea being that some future mission might get it and return it back to Earth, but, um, you know, it'll it'll collect it and save it for later. Uh, New science and stuff in terms of understanding the composition of the surface of Mars and a bonus mission. We got the Mars helicopter is going to ride on board and it's going to be the first aerial uh, exploration uh, mission, right? It's a little drone with uh, counter-rotating helicopter rotors and basically a one U CubeSat on the bottom. And it's such a novel concept um, that I, I'm super excited about it. And hopefully uh, it'll the novelty will wear off and exploring other bodies from the surface, but, you know, in all different aspects and all these different shapes and forms, of how these surface missions uh, will kind of evolve over time. And this is one of the first steps into the future. Uh, Mars 2020 is going to be awesome. Hopefully, I hope it gets a better name. 
Uh, not sure what to call it, but uh, Mars 2020 for now. What are some of the other science missions you guys are uh, excited about in 2020? We have OSIRIS-REx actually collecting its sample from asteroid Bennu. Uh, so this is just another milestone on its multi-year mission. Uh, and that means we're going to be getting close-up shots of Bennu as the uh, vehicle descends, which is always nice to see. We're able to get up close and personal with an asteroid so far away from Earth. Uh, which is always just a really unique perspective. Definitely. And we have another number of kind of Mars missions, including the Rosalind Franklin rover, which was previously referred to as the ExoMars rover, um, launched um, as a collaboration between Roscosmos and ESA. We also have China launching a Mars probe with a lander, it's and temp, it's currently codenamed HX1. Um, it'll include a rover, um, kind of similar to the designs of the current lunar rovers sent by China. Um, we also have a new player in, um, I suppose, Mars missions, the UAE with their Hope Mars mission, which will include. It'll be an orbiter attempting to. Um, produce the first quote-unquote truly global picture of the Martian atmosphere. And so, you know, 2020 is a launch window to Mars, and so we have a large number of science missions preparing and, and attempting to launch this year. Yeah, it's definitely exciting to see new orbiters around Mars because uh, we have a few NASA-led uh, orbiter missions uh, going back decades and to have new technology with high resolution sensors and cameras, higher bandwidth communication equipment lets us get a more accurate and more visually rich picture of Mars, which is always wonderful. A different interplanetary body that I'm excited about, and I talked a little bit about this before, I think. Another uh, interesting planetary body is OSIRIS-REx. We'll have its sample collect uh, from Bennu um, in 2020. It's been orbiting. It's going to put down a little suction cup on the surface and spray some air at it or some gas at it and blow sample material, regolith, from Bennu back into its collection bucket. And then um, in twenty in the next coming years, bring it back to Earth. Um, I'm pumped about that. I love sample collect missions. Uh, so that's another one I'm really excited for. 2020 is also, again, as we mentioned before, another big year for rocket development, all that development that we're really excited about in 2019 is going to come to fruition. Starting with commercial crew, 2019, we saw a lot of development uh, with uncrewed missions. 2020 is going to have people on these rockets, in these capsules, going to the space station, or so we hope. Yeah, Yeah, it's super exciting. You know, the orbital test flight for Boeing didn't go perfectly to plan, but... Hopefully those fixes are quick and maybe they'll need another unmanned uh, test. Maybe they'll go straight to a manned test. SpaceX has their in-flight abort test, which is going to be a very visually beautiful launch because you'll get to see a rocket purposely explode in flight. Uh, But once those milestones are taken care of, we'll actually see people flying back to the space station. Um, Personally, I think, I was just thinking about this, 
What I'm excited to see is now that the dependence on Russia for keeping the, the space station uh, crude is no more, we can start to go back to being you know more equal partners in the space station. Because you know Russia's had this thing kind of hanging over us for for several years, and NASA has been very NASA and Congress have been very verbally uh, outspoken about how they don't like this. And space has been this place where we can collaborate and build things better together. And hopefully, this opens up you know opportunities for Russian cosmonauts to fly on our vehicles, American astronauts to still fly on Soyuz, and to just really kind of. Uh, shift gears to bigger and better things with the remaining years of the International Space Station and eventually Artemis uh, in the late 2020s. And uh, these vehicles will be basically completely automated, which is something new for American spaceflight, where the astronauts basically just sit there and ride along. Uh, So I'm excited to see how that plays out. Uh, 2020 is also going to be an awesome year for suborbital human spaceflight. Virgin Galactic is expected to finally make its first tourist flight with a paying customer. So this is a moment, a decade and more in the making. Uh, Virgin Galactic has had some very notable incidents, but in 2019 they made several successful test flights uh, with their new Spaceship 2. Uh, with test pilots, they had their uh, chief astronaut trainer uh, fly in the cabin and uh, basically work out the training program that customers will have to go through in order to fly. And uh, there should be only a few more steps before paying customers actually get to experience being suborbital. I'm very excited. These have been very long lead uh missions or, or like the concept of uh, tourist space flight at the edge of space um, and space tourism has been talked about since since uh, Richard Branson first made the foray into commercial space. Um, and yeah, finally, 2020 is the year, man. Yes. And hot on Virgin Galactic's heels is New Shepard's first human flight. Uh, so they've only been doing uh, uncrewed flights. Uh, Phil mentioned that they've had paying customer payloads for microgravity experiments. Uh, but in 2020, we might see a Blue Origin uh, astronaut actually board New Shepard and fly. Uh, it remains to be seen if they'll have paying customers uh, by the end of 2020, but we should be able to see two different suborbital tourist rocket-powered vehicles fly in 2020 which is fantastic. SpaceX, of course, will be watching SpaceX in 2020. Starship and uh, the booster for it, super heavy. Um, Super cool, super crazy. What's going to happen? Who knows? We think what's going to happen is going to be more development uh, at McGregor, Texas. We're going to see some stuff fly, maybe. We're going to see some stuff blow up, maybe. Yeah, there. I mean, Elon Musk mentions a number of orbital tests on schedule for the first half of this year. So we might see Starship in space. Um, We might see an orbital landing. It'll be exciting to just keep up with the Starship development. It's going to be crazy. I'm most excited about seeing a finished Super Heavy. It doesn't have to fly, but the whole Super Heavy booster with some number of Raptor engines at the bottom 
as well as the completion of one of the new Starship launch mounts. SpaceX is building one in Florida at Launch Complex 39A. They're also building uh, what looks to be almost identical one in Boca Chica. And these are basically large steel flame deflectors rather than the large concrete and brick uh, kind of hills that we typically associate with big rockets. Uh, This is a big steel platform sticking off the side with like an angled piece of metal. Um, And so it'll be really interesting to see a Starship or a Super Heavy standing on this metal pedestal, uh, either doing static fire tests or even with Starship potentially uh, short hops or real flights. So it's really exciting to see that. If that does take place and if we do see uh, Super Heavy and a Starship uh, mounted on a launch pad, that will be the defining photo of 2020. uh, Unless... You know, the only thing that would compete with that, in my opinion, would be, you know, an incredible picture from Mars. But I think in terms of rock development and everything we've seen so far, just the novelty and the scale and the, uh, you know, the statement that that would, picture would send, I think would be the defining photo of, of 2020. And then Starlink first initial service is slated to happen in 2020 with uh, how many satellites are necessary for the minimum viable product? 400 something we did the math last year there was a number that was so announced by Gwen Shotwell but it was over a thousand we should we should yeah SpaceX has changed their or requested a change to their constellation so they want instead of uh, they want less satellites per plane but more planes and the kind of marketing pitch for that is they want to be able to provide service for the 2020 hurricane season. So they would have user terminals that emergency services could use. So that's their pitch to the federal government as why they want to have this new format. Uh, Otherwise, SpaceX is planning to launch 20 plus separate launches of Starlink this year, uh, which is a huge number of Falcon rocket launches. All right. um, One thing that's not on the the, uh, outline, but I did want to mention. So 2020 is also going to be a new year for our podcast, for SpexCast. We're bringing Ferris along with us. Welcome, Ferris. Thank you, guys. Um, and we're going to continue covering uh, these stories that we just talked about in 2020. Keep talking about them, giving commentary. Um, there's some events coming up. There's also, you know, Spaceport America Cup. It's going to have a third year at Spaceport America in uh, New Mexico. We're going to try to talk to some more uh, key people, interesting people and engineers in the space industry, talk about space exploration and science. Um, and so if you, listener, uh, have uh, a very important topic that you'd like us to talk to, about, or uh, you know somebody that would be very interesting to hear on the show, feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at SpexCast or send an email to SpexCast at gmail.com. And uh, it's going to be a really exciting year in 2020, uh, not just for us, but for the industry at large. And uh, space is so cool. I'm I'm so, I'm so glad that we get to we get to do this. So welcome, Ferris. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, thank you guys for having me. I'm currently a space systems engineer in the industry. I you know, studied aerospace engineering at UC San Diego, and during my time in college, we I worked with SEDS, Students for the Exploration Development of Space at UC San Diego to develop 3D printed rocket engines. And we were one of the first student groups to develop um, 
3D printed rocket engines. Um, we also worked on a, we you know, strapped it to a liquid fueled rocket. We flew to about 10,000 feet. I worked on a, within the same, you know, within my time in college, I've also worked on um, the Tritea CubeSat, which was part of the NASA CubeQuest competition to launch secondary payloads on EM1. Um, and during our time working on Tritea, we've kind of uh, gone past the conceptual design phase, preliminary, critical design, um, and kind of were able to place in the top three in the nation for the competition. Ultimately, though, our project was shelved um, because of the long timelines associated with space missions. And from there on, I worked on a small startup to make software for systems engineers to support the development of really complex projects. And we worked with the Air Force for some time. And from there on, I transitioned um, to being a space systems engineer. Awesome. Well, uh, we're really happy to have you on board. And yeah, looking forward to bringing you along with us in these conversations about uh, space science and technology in 2020. Awesome. And thank you for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to get future ones on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever podcast app you use. You can check out our huge backlog of past episodes. Oh, I should mention Spotify. If you like this episode, subscribe to us to get future ones on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whichever podcast app you prefer. You can check out our huge backlog of past episodes and blog posts, including interviews with key people in the space industry, in-depth articles on spacecrafts and rockets, and commentaries on recent events in the space industry on our website, blog.specscast.com. Let us know what you think uh, by leaving a review on iTunes or your podcast service, or reach out to us via Twitter at Specscast or send an email to specscast at gmail.com. Our music is by Nelson Scott. Boom. Stop the recording. <laughs>